All right, well, if you would, go ahead and open up in your Bibles to the book of Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 1, Song of Solomon chapter 1. If you have any uh, folks here this morning who forgot your Bible, it's okay. Uh, Feel free to use one of those Bibles that are provided in the seats in front of you. Uh, You'll find our passage this morning on page 560 uh, in those Bibles. And of course, we would like to have our Bibles open because we want to see the Word of God laid out in front of us as as we talk about it, which is basically what we do. We look at the Word of God, we study it, we think about it, we seek to apply it to our lives. And this morning, we are reading love poetry, because that's really what the Song of Solomon is. It's a song of love. It's a song about the kind of rapturous bliss that a husband and his bride can experience in their relationship together. The Song of Solomon is a song about friendship, about desire, about intimacy between lovers, but the meaning rises much higher than even that. The Song of Solomon, perhaps more than any other book of the Bible, points us to the kind of spiritual delight and enjoyment that our souls can know in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the Song of Solomon is a foretaste of heaven. A foretaste of what it will mean to be with our Savior and to live in His perfect love forever in a perfect world. In our verses this morning, the bride of the song is speaking. Uh, We're going to look at only two verses. Song of Solomon chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. So look with me there. Verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1. This is the word of God. And this is what our bride says. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Gadar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard... I have not kept. Now, as we look at these two verses this morning, I want to use three headings. So here we go. The three headings for our study this morning. Number one, the Egyptian. Number two, the Israelite. And number three, the church. And I'll explain what all of those mean. So number one, the Egyptian. Number two, the Israelite. Number three, the church. And then we'll look at a few implications. So first, the Egyptian. The Song of Solomon has been understood in many different ways. So let me tell you up front how I understand this particular book of the Bible. I take the Song of Solomon to be poetic fiction informed by true events celebrating human love and pointing to the higher love of Christ and his people. So I'll give that to you again. I understand the Song of Solomon to be poetic fiction informed by true events, 
celebrating human love and pointing to the higher love of Christ and his people. Now I say that the Song of Solomon is fiction because it contains many elements that seem to me at least to be clearly fictional. Uh, For example, we will read later of Solomon leaping over mountains, of Solomon bounding over hills, and I certainly take that to be at least exaggeration. And the truth is, when you try and read this poem as though it was telling some kind of historical story, you run yourselves in circles trying to put the the storyline together. It just, it doesn't work. And the commentaries that try and take that perspective, they all contradict each other because nobody can come up with a coherent, historical, truthful narrative for this book. I think the reason that it's written as a poem is to help us see that this is a fictitious song rather than sober history. But that being said... There are some hints that elements of this poem were in fact inspired by real people and real events in Solomon's life. And we have evidence of that right here in these verses. For what do we learn about the bride of this poem in verses 5 and 6? We learn, for example, that this lady is dark-skinned. And not just dark, she says she is very dark And we find the bride addressing the daughters of Jerusalem, and it appears that she is not one of them. She is an outsider. She is different from the daughters of Jerusalem. And she will appear that way throughout the poem. Then, down in verse 9, Solomon compares his bride to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Now, that's an interesting comparison. And I wonder if it might be a hint. Because you see, we all know that wise Solomon got very foolish as he aged. Uh, As Solomon got older and entered into the latter years of his life, he took many wives, he maintained a large harem, he acted in folly. But before that, in the prime of Solomon's wisdom, we read of only one wife of Solomon. And she was the daughter of Pharaoh in Egypt. Uh, she is mentioned multiple times. 1 Kings 3, 1 Kings 7, 1 Kings 9, 1 Kings 11. And we learn that Solomon took his Egyptian wife from her home country to the city of David to Jerusalem. Uh, he built an entire hall in his palace just for her. And he also built his Egyptian wife a second home in a place called Milo. When you put all of this information together, it seems very possible that this first wife of Solomon, who certainly would have been dark-skinned, coming from Egypt, who would have been an outsider among the daughters of Jerusalem, she very well may have been the inspiration for the bride of our song. And there's something really wonderful about this. For you see, Solomon sits on the throne of David. And the promise had been given to Israel that a son of David would reign forever, as we heard about in the lighting of our second candle. That this son of David would reign forever, that his reign would be marked by blessedness. 
And whereas Solomon was not the ultimate son of David, he is a shadow of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, never were things so wonderful for Israel as they were under King Solomon. It was under Solomon that the promised land felt most like the promised land. It was under Solomon that that Israel uh, found itself wealthy with wealth coming into the nation. Uh, It was under Solomon that the nations around Israel uh, began to respect Israel, to show honor to Israel, to pay tribute to Israel. Moreover, Solomon proved to be a good king, a wise king, a just ruler. Uh, We remember, I hope, the story of the two women who both came before him, each claiming that this particular baby that they brought was their baby. And in order to figure out which was the true mother, he ordered for the baby to be torn in half, half given to each mother. And of course, the true mother cried out. She said, I'd rather lose this baby to another woman than to sacrifice my child. And in that way, the true mother was revealed. And Solomon gave her her child. And that's given to us as just an example of the kind of wisdom that Solomon has as he ruled over God's people in their glory days. So here is this great kingdom, in many ways, a shadow of heaven under Solomon. And here is Pharaoh's daughter, who is an outsider. She's not part of this great kingdom. In fact, she's part of the kingdom that once enslaved Israel, right? She's part of a, of a, of a different, uh, ungodly kingdom. And the blessing and the glory that Israel knows under Solomon, it's It's not hers. She's alienated from that. And yet Solomon comes to her and takes her as his wife. He takes this lady and makes her not just a citizen of the land, but he actually brings her into his very palace, into his very love as his bride. And of course, dear Christians, is that not exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us? We are told in the Gospels that Jesus is the one who is greater than Solomon. Solomon was the shadow. Jesus is the reality. And you and I were once far away from Christ. By nature, we were outside of his kingdom. We were outside of his blessings. We we were outsiders. Those who have Jesus as their Lord know what it is to have peace that passes understanding. Those who know Jesus as their Lord, as their King, have a joy that is deeper than any other joy that can be found on this planet. But we were on the outside looking in. And yet, Christ in his great love came to us through the gospel and he took us to himself. And he didn't just make us citizens of his heavenly kingdom, as glorious as that is but he actually made us part of his own bride. Jesus is the lover of our souls, the great bridegroom, the one who is preparing us for the great wedding day. And on the last day, we will know what it is to bask in the fullness of Christ's love in a way that we have never experienced here on earth. The great wedding feast will take place and then the honeymoon, which is called the new heavens and the new earth, will last forever. 
And so we have a picture of that here. I ask you, is that your hope this morning, dear Christian? Mount Hermon, are you like the young woman who knows that her groom is coming for her? The betrothal has already happened. You're already engaged. Okay? You know the wedding day is coming and you're just you're ready for your groom to come to take you to himself that where he is you may always be for you are no longer an outsider. You've been made his. Are you longing for that? Are you waiting for that day? So that's the Egyptian. I think she's the inspiration for the bride in our song. But now let's talk about the Israelite, the Israelite, because while the Egyptian wife of Solomon may have been the inspiration for this bride, she is only the inspiration. The bride in this song is a different woman, a a fictitious woman. And in many ways, she's like Cinderella. Uh, She comes from very humble origins, and yet she ends up the bride of the king, Uh, The bride appears to be an Israelite, probably from northern Israel, as we will see later in the song. She's definitely not from Jerusalem. Uh, She's been brought here, which is why she is having regular dialogues with the, the daughters of Jerusalem. But she's not one of them. She's from further north in the kingdom. And she is dark, but unlike Solomon's real wife, she isn't naturally dark. Her darkness isn't because she comes from Africa. Rather, her darkness, she says, is because she has spent many, many hours out in the sun working. In Middle Eastern culture, like most cultures, including many African cultures, the lighter the skin tone, the more beautiful a person was said to be. And this was because paler skin reflected an easier life for the woman. Uh, paler skin usually meant that the woman came from means, that, that while others were doing work in the fields, she remained mostly inside and was cared for. Uh, pale skin was a sign of privilege. But Our Lady here is not a lady of privilege. She says that her mother's sons were angry with her, made her work to maintain their vineyards. It, it's interesting, she doesn't even call them brothers. She calls them her her mother's sons. Likely reflects that things in this home were not great. Uh, Her brothers were not brotherly towards her. She was mistreated by them. And it was this work that they made her do that caused her body to be sunburnt and punished by the desert sun. And there's a play on words here. Uh, She says, they made me keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. And throughout this book, we will see the language of vines and fruit and wine used again and again of the bride's body. She herself is a vineyard. But in working to maintain the literal vineyards of her wicked brothers, her own vineyard, her body, has suffered. And then there's disdain here. The implication is that the daughters of Jerusalem, the fair ladies of the capital city at the height of Israel's glory, are looking down on this woman. Surely Solomon, the great king, deserves a better bride than this. 
Surely Solomon would not take for himself a woman whose body has been spoiled by so much labor and so much desert sun. And yet, this is exactly whom Solomon chooses for his bride. Well, that moves us to our third heading, the church. The church. You see, the name Solomon is important here. In history, Solomon is a wise king of Israel who turned foolish as he aged. But in this song, King Solomon is the height of kingly goodness and glory. The name Solomon literally means man of peace. You probably know the Hebrew word shalom, right? Shalom, peace. Do you hear that in the name Solomon? Right? His name means man of peace. And Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, is pointing to the true man of peace, the, the prince of peace, who was to come. Uh, Solomon, in this song, is the peace giver. He is the king of peace. Now, the woman in this song is later identified as the Shulamite woman. So everybody say Shulamite. Now, you would think that a Shulamite woman would be a woman that comes from a place called Shulam, right? And that's how I would think. There must be a place called Shulam, and she's a Shulamite. The problem is, there is no such place, at least that we know of, called Shulam. Rather, the word Shulamite also appears to be related to the word Shalom. You hear it in Shulamite, don't you? Shulamite, Shalom. Solomon is the peace giver, the Shulamite woman seems to be the peace receiver. She is the woman of peace through Solomon. She comes to, to know peace and to have peace. And surely, just as Jesus is the greater Solomon, the man of peace, the church is the greater Shulamite woman, the people who come to know peace through him. And so this woman seems to point to Christ's bride, to, to all God's people from every age. She is all of those who have come to know the love of the true God. And yet, when people today look at the church of Christ, what do they see? Do they see a fair lady? Does the church of Christ look like a beautiful princess, the envy of all the world? Does the church look like a bride, spotless and pure, dressed splendidly and beautifully? No, not at all. The church of Christ today often looks very sunburnt and very weary. Like this lady in our song, the church has been persecuted by others, just as she was by her brothers. This lady, she saw her strength and her health affected and what do we see as we look around at the church, even in our own day and even in our own land? How would you assess the condition of the bride of Christ as it exists in the United States today? She's being threatened by the increasingly hostile policies of our government. Our culture is beginning to war against her. The church in our land is mocked and ridiculed slandered and misrepresented. We were talking last night with uh, some of the leaders of our church about how uh, there was a day when even unbelievers would come to church because it was a respectable thing to do. But no longer is it even considered respectable. 
Certainly as we look around, we see what false teaching is doing to the church of Christ in the U.S. And then if we expand our horizon a little bit and we consider the church around the world, what do we see? Prosperity gospel teaching is wreaking havoc in the bride of Christ in Central and Southern America and now increasingly in Africa and Eastern Europe. Christ's people find themselves the targets of increasingly restrictive laws, both in Europe and in Canada, certainly in the Middle East, perhaps even soon here. Christians in the Middle East and parts of Southeast Asia live in fear every day for their lives. Many are imprisoned. Many thousands have been killed. Even while I was working on this message, a report came out about a teenager in Belgium who was the son of an imam there, and he confessed to the police that an attack was being planned on a major shopping center there in Belgium. And he told the police that this was the plan, to butcher Christians with chainsaws. That's what they wanted to do. Christians were going to be the target, and the weapons were going to be chainsaws. So when we start talking about how glorious the church of Christ is, you can see why people might laugh. Very few famous people seem to be in love with Jesus Christ. Very few of the wealthiest people in our world seem to be a part of his bride. In the eyes of the world, it is the foolish, the weak, the expendables. They're the ones who are Christians. What does the Bible tell us? God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Mount Hermon, do you know what true loveliness is? True loveliness is anything that shows the glorious character of God. The ocean is lovely because as we look at it, it speaks to us of God's power, God's creativity, His vastness, His infinitude, His wisdom. A leaf is lovely. Because as we look at it, we see God's ingenuity, we see his design, we see his, his artistry. So also, though the church of Christ may look unlovely in the eyes of the world, the church of Christ is indeed very lovely. Because our lives speak to the grace of God, because when people look at us and take seriously what they see, they see God's compassion, they see God's grace, they see God upholding us, and therefore we are trophies of His grace. We are pictures of His loveliness. Our lives speak to God's goodness and power as He sustains us through every trial, as He brings us to Himself as His bride. We are objects of God's mercy, and in that way, we are very lovely. And so much of this book is about how Christ sees His bride as the most beautiful among women. In fact, just look down at verse 8 if you want proof. Verse 8 he speaks, if you do not know, what does he call her? 
almost beautiful among women. The daughters of Jerusalem say, don't look at her. She's sunburnt, she's weary, she's dark. You don't want her. King Solomon says, you are the most beautiful among women. You are the one that has my heart, the apple of my eye. That's how God sees his church. We are lovely in that Christ is making us lovely through his word. The Bible says that Jesus is washing his bride with the water of his word. He's he's preparing her, cleansing her for the great wedding day. However we may appear outwardly to the world, inwardly we are being made lovely for Christ. And by his spirit, the church of Christ is growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And these are the descriptions of loveliness. These are true beauty because these reflect our Savior. The bride says in our song that she is like the tents of Kedar. Do you see that? Makes perfect sense, right? The tents of Kedar, everybody knows about that. No, of course not. So you have to say, well, what in the world is that? So um, these tents were likely Bedouin tents, okay? So these are folks who, they're nomads. They travel around with their flocks. They live in tents, much like Abraham. And these tents were likely made of goat hair. Uh, when I was in Israel, actually, we saw uh, some of these, these Bedouin tents. We saw some in Jordan. We saw some, actually, just as you're coming into the city of Jerusalem, we saw some on the outskirts there, Uh, these tents can become quite black, not only because of the the goat hair, but because of their exposure to the sun over time. Now, some suppose that these tents of Kedar must have been well known because of their craftsmanship and their beauty, that this lady is saying, my beauty is like the beautiful tents of Kedar. But I actually don't think that's, that's what's being said. I think John Gill is onto something when he says that the point here is that these tents did not look magnificent on the outside. But the people of Kedar were known for their great treasures, which were kept on the inside. In other words, the tents of Kedar may have been tents of very wealthy Bedouin people. When you look from the outside, they just looked like tents. But you went inside, and you were like, wow, look at the treasure that is here. Look at the glory that is here. It was like a palace kept in a humble tent. So also the lady compares herself to the curtains of Solomon. You see that? So some think these were the curtains found in the temple since Solomon in the song represents the peace giver God. So maybe he's talking about the curtains of the temple or these may have been the curtains actually in Solomon's palace. Either way, the point is this. The curtains hid great glory. At Solomon's palace, these curtains hid the treasures that were within the palace. At the temple, these curtains hid the very glory of the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. So if I'm right, the point here is that though this lady did not appear to be much in the eyes of the daughters of Jerusalem, she has an inner beauty that they do not have. And so it is with Christ's people. We may not have fame or fortune. We may not be outwardly impressive to the world. But we have the Spirit of God within us. We have the Word of God being written into our hearts. 
we have God at work within us to make us have the characteristics of beauty. Holiness is being formed in us. And so we are becoming all the more beautiful every day by the power of God. Two implications. Two implications. Number one, I wonder, do you have this mark of loveliness this morning? Are you lovely with the beauty that really matters, namely the beauty of Christian character? The loveliness that is formed in us as the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus. Friends, the beauty of holiness is the greatest beauty of all. It is the very beauty of God being formed in us. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? When we speak of the majesty of God, his splendor, his beauty, his glory, what are we referring to? Primarily, his holiness, his nature, and his character. Friends, there are many things in this world that are beautiful. Uh, To look out over the ocean, to stand atop Grandfather Mountain and look out over the landscape, that's beautiful. But that beauty pales in comparison to the awesome beauty of God himself. These things are just faint reflections of the one who made them. The beauty of our God is a grandeur that our fallen minds cannot even fully grasp. And yet, as we pursue holiness and grow in holiness, we are beginning to show more and more of our family resemblance. Right? Like father, like son, like father, like daughter. We as sons and daughters of God are reflecting more and more of his majesty in this world as we grow in holiness. We are the light of his beauty shining forth in this dark world. When we live in sin, we're putting our light under a basket. But when we live in righteousness, when the Spirit of God is at work in us and we're walking with the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is coming out, that is us taking our light and putting it on a lampstand. That is us being a city on a hill. Moreover, the beauty of holiness is more than skin deep. You may be outwardly attractive and inwardly unattractive. (laughs) It is the inward beauty that matters most. Physical beauty fades. The beauty of holiness continues. Let me just ask you, does kindness ever grow old? Do you ever think, eh, I don't care so much for people being kind anymore? No. Kindness is always attractive. How about patience or gentleness or selflessness? Does fairness or compassion or love ever get old? Are these things not always beautiful to the godly? There is a depth to spiritual beauty, the beauty of holiness, that no other kind of beauty can can compete with. There's a power to spiritual beauty that physical beauty cannot even try to, to match. We all know that there are outwardly beautiful people in this world, 
that sadly are absolutely horrid on the inside. Outwardly, they're attractive, but their beauty is only skin deep. There are also people in this world who are outwardly unattractive, but inwardly, they're lovely. In the long run, which beauty will bring you the most joy and satisfaction and happiness to your life? The beauty of holiness has a way of blessing you and blessing others and bringing lasting joy in ways that physical beauty simply cannot. And so Peter says to Christian ladies, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty, the beauty that cannot perish, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. In those two verses, Peter is seeking to grab the attention of ladies, and he's trying to point them away from external adornments. And instead, he's pointing them to what really matters, the beauty of one's character. Proverbs eleven twenty two, Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Pigs are ugly. Except for maybe little baby pigs. They're kind of cute. But then they get old and they're ugly. Right? Putting a gold ring in a pig's snout does not remove its ugliness. So also, all of the outward adornments in this world will not make a woman of ugly character any less ugly. Let her wear her jewelry. Let her wear her fine clothing. Let her have her hair done upright. But as soon as she begins to open her mouth and actually relate to people, all of that beauty will be swallowed up in the ugliness of her character. The fact is, spiritual holiness can make up for physical unattractiveness. But physical beauty can never make up for spiritual ugliness. In fact, we can say that the beauty of holiness is unattractive to the ungodly, but it's attractive to the godly. So one of the most common descriptions of the wicked and the lost in the Bible is that they are blind. And Isaiah 42 says that Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind. This didn't just mean the physically blind. Jesus opens the eyes of people who are blind to true beauty, the beauty of holiness. Those who have not been made new by the Holy Spirit will often call good evil and evil good. Isn't that true? They don't know true beauty from from false beauty. We need to recognize that our culture does this all the time. And as you are around people who are unbelievers, there are many who will say your honesty is unhelpful. (laughs) Honesty is repulsive to a greedy or deceptive heart. Sexual purity will be deemed unattractive by the self-indulgent and the lusting heart. Young people in this room, you need to know this. Growing in holiness will protect you as you seek a spouse. If you grow in holiness, you will be unattractive to the very people you want to be unattractive to. Okay, It will keep away the people whom you should not marry. The more they get to know you, the more that you keep talking about God and showing your interest in spiritual things, the more that person will be put off by you. And that's what you want when seeking a spouse. 
the godly will see you differently. The godly have learned to recognize true beauty. And if you are a person of holiness, godly people will be attracted to you. And so if you want to be a godly spouse, don't work hard to make yourself outwardly attractive. Work hard on your heart. Pursue patience and kindness and love and a sacrificial spirit. Mount Hermon, do we have the beauty of holiness? Second implication, and we're done. We're almost done. Do you see the bride of Christ as he does? Or do you see her as the daughters of Jerusalem see her? In other words, do you see the church of Christ as Christ sees her or as the world sees her? What is your perspective? What is your regard for Christ's people? What is your esteem for Christ's bride? Hear the words of this hymn. See if they reflect your heart. I love your kingdom, Lord, the place of your abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love your church, O God, her saints before you stand, dear as the apple of your eye engraven on your hand. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Do you love the church of Christ? Do you see her as God sees her, as beautiful? Or do you regard her as the world does, as insignificant or even unattractive? And I'm talking about regarding the church. I'm talking about how you regard the people sitting around you in this room who are Christians. What esteem do you have for the bride of Christ? Well, as we come to the Lord's table... Let us come rejoicing that our Savior loves us. Let us come with a high regard for those people he has died to call his own. Let us be grateful that it is his saving work which has made our relationship with him possible. And let us remember that it is Christ's spirit within us who is working to make us lovely. Mount Hermon, this little supper this morning points to the great wedding feast to come. On that day, we will stand before our bridegroom, radiant and pure, blameless and lovely. The picture, the beauty of our holiness will be more amazing than any beauty your eyes have ever seen in this life. And yet somehow I think on that day, we will not be looking at our own beauty. I think somehow on that day, our eyes will be fixed on the greatest glory of all, the beauty, majesty, and splendor of our Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.